Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Every returning guest, a man of mystery in many, many knowledge areas, uh, his name is Brendan Coventry. He's an associate professor of surgery in Adelaide at the University of South Australia, Adelaide. There's many things we could talk about because he's knowledgeable in a lot of areas. So this interview, I wanted to ask him, asking him right now, you know, Brendan, tell me what you want to talk about, and then I'll just I'll ask you questions surrounding it. Well, we started off talking in the last podcast about um, vaccines for cancer, and uh, we were also talking a little about the rhythmicity of a lot of systems in the body. And um, we got interested in, in both of these things, and, and they, they kind of culminated in much deeper and, and I must say, a lot broader understanding of how the immune system might be working or appears to work. And it was really interesting in that the immune system, like a lot of systems in the body, in fact, if you, the more you search, the more you find. And, and what we've noted is that just about every system in the body, if not every system, actually has some sort of cycle going on. It's got some sort of rhythm. And that rhythm is sometimes a bit hard to, to elucidate when you look at it because you need something really to measure to be able to detect the fluctuation that occurs uh, in in that particular system. But, you know, it's been done in the past a lot and, and we've known about a lot of these rhythms for a very long time. Uh, for example, temperature. 
We know that temperature changes during the day, during the course of a 24-hour period. Um, we know that cortisol changes, and, and there's some relationship between those two. Um, we know that bone and calcium change uh, over a much longer period. And we know that, um, that many other um, systems in the body fluctuate. I mean, you know, for example, the heart beats. So it, it, it actually has a, a rhythm about it, a cycle about it. Our breathing is cyclical. It, it so it's like a circadian-based science in a way, right? Well, there's a whole area that's grown up in exactly that area, Richard. So it's, um, it is. Well, I can, I can tell you briefly, um, you know, I take a whole bunch of different vitamins. And one time my wife sat down and looked them all up and, you know, the optimal times to take them, some were day, some were night, you know, because their effects in the body. And I changed for a few weeks and tried it out. And I actually felt a lot better just by changing the timing of the various like supplements I was taking to optimize them more. When did you find was the optimal? Could you, could you pin a time down? Well, summer in the morning because either they uh, you know had kind of like a, a caffeine effect or sometimes it would contain caffeine. You know, some were at night before bed, some were midday. Pretty much all were you know with meals, some were without meals. But um, I, it's, it's a whole bunch. But I did notice that I felt a lot better just by you know taking the exact same stuff, but I tweaked when I took it. And each of them, you know, after your research online has kind of advice like you know if you do b complex uh, from what i understand it should be definitely earlier in the day if you have it close to bed it it hinders your sleep so that's like one example you know yeah and and caffeine itself is a bit like that isn't it i mean you can you can uh, it sparks you up in the morning and it it sort of can keep you awake at night if you have it late and it seems to be affected by age a bit too so younger people seem to not be affected terribly much by caffeine whereas older people seem to be kept awake at night a lot if they have caffeine late so oh, yeah i used to drink caffeine at like midnight and then go to sleep shortly after but now no way yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's fascinating. It's a, it's something that a lot of people comment on, and and you know clearly, uh, circadian means about a day, so it's a rhythm of about a day. And w- there's lots of rhythms, though. We we can we can start to sort of unpick this a bit, and we've done this a bit with some of our cancer work since around two thousand and seven, six or seven, and and we've been looking at at when we might get more response from the immune system when we vaccinate and um Brendan, one quick i don't mean to interrupt you on this but yeah, yeah sure all of a sudden i had a flash of thought in my mind like let's if we take cancer i would think 99.9 percent of treatment happens in the early day or morning has anyone ever looked at treatments at night you know we're in a different rhythm with cancer and has it had any effect and then if not we'll go back to the vaccine stuff it's a hell of a good question because just looking into it i, I can find very, very little. Maybe something exists on it, but I, I, I'm having trouble finding it. And it even, even extends wider than that because we treat in our cancer clinics, and, and it's not only cancer, we treat in lots of areas of, um, of medicine. We treat when it suits the clinic. So it's, it's, a, it's an operational thing. It's, it's something that relates to our work task agenda rather than what might be going on in the patient. Now, to give you an example, um, the if you look at say um, the administration of surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, we, yeah. we do this at a time that's essentially convenient to the institution and to the practitioner. We don't do it at a time that might be optimal for the patient. And a few years ago, there was a lot of literature came out, and and it it's still largely unresolved, but um, a lot of literature came out saying 
um, in breast cancer, whether you should operate on women at certain phases in their menstrual cycle. So, you know, if, if a woman was uh, still actively menstruating, would, which is another, another rhythm, completely, that's 28-day rhythm, roughly, then, uh, you know, should you be operating the teal phase or follicular phase in the cycle? And, and therefore, would it, would it alter outcome? So breast cancer being a potentially hormonally responsive cancer, um, does it matter when you operate on the woman within the cycle? It might be better to delay it, say, two weeks. It might be better to bring it forward, say, two weeks. And and it's essentially... That makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of yeah. sense. Yeah. I, I've well, learned also that, unfortunately, most drugs are tested on, you know, let's say rats or people, male rats or male people. Women, you know, I, I've never seen drug data. I've seen, you know, don't take this while pregnant, but it's kind of a, a blanket disclaimer. But I haven't seen drugs where they have clinical data on women where they administered it at different parts of their cycle, for instance. Yeah. And we're noticing some of this stuff at, with the COVID vaccinations, too. You know, you know, when do we optimally vaccinate for COVID? We know now that certain of the COVID vaccines, perhaps not as not as effective and, and maybe even uh, are associated with more side effects in certain age groups. So, you know, this. There's a whole lot of stuff that we that we're right on the edge of understanding, and most of it gets glossed over because of convenience. You know, it's too it's too awkward to try and sort of alter to treat on a Sunday, say, or to treat at midnight, or to treat at 10 p.m. at night, as opposed to 9 a.m. on a Monday or a Tuesday or some some convenient time. So we started looking into this a lot more, and and initially we noticed that when we were vaccinating on a regular fortnightly basis uh, for, for melanoma, this is advanced melanoma now, then we were finding that what happened was quite remarkable. We could see the tumour would sort of grow and then it would regress. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And the effectiveness of the individual vaccines seemed to vary a bit. It was almost like we were kind of hitting a particular space in the patient's own immune system that was making it either more effective or less effective. And we couldn't, we could never really get a handle on it. And it's still incredibly complex. We started measuring a, an inflammatory marker that I mentioned in the last talk called uh, C-reactive protein or CRP. Now, C-reactive protein is really interesting because it, it's been regarded as a global type of marker for inflammation. And, and it can be inflammation of lots of types. I mean, say, infective inflammation or uh, inflammation, say, from arthritis, uh, autoimmunity, even cancer. And CRP is, is a remarkable molecule. It, just a little bit of background on that. It, it's, um, it's a pentraxin. So it's, it's actually got five 
parts to it, large parts to it. It's quite a large molecule, so it's a, it's a pentameric structure. And it uh, is released principally from a range of tissues in response to trauma uh, and in response to inflammation. Very, very global thing. Um, and we, we started getting interested in exactly what it does too, because it's, it seems to act as a bit of a mop for the serum and maybe the tissues as well. And what it does is it, it picks up debris from inflammation. So in the inflammatory process is, you know, just like a, a battle, you know, a good old fashioned battle. You have one side attacking the other side and, and the aftermath is a whole lot of bits and pieces and dead bodies lying everywhere. And someone needs to come in and sort of clean those up. And in a way, the immune system fight is a little bit the same. There's there's a whole lot of debris that's left over from the immune battle that's gone on uh, or going on. And CRP is released in response. Um, so it's detected and, and interleukin-6, one of the, the interleukins, which is, is a cytokine, which there's there's a, a whole range of interleukins that that actually drive immune responses and they they do a lot of other things in the tissues too it's not just the immune system and this sort of shows a complexity where the immune system's kind of um, somehow integrally interrelated with lots of other systems like the nervous system and the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system all of these systems, which we divide conveniently as humans with our feeble little brains having to split things into bits, sort of somehow it overarches all of this and it, it works in a way where all of these systems are just kind of one, uh, which they are anyway, and, and they're, they're dynamically interacted with each other. And, and in there somewhere are these, these rhythms and the rhythms there's rhythms of, of interleukin-6, there's rhythms of CRP, and there's rhythms of just about everything else that you can, you can think of, um, red blood cells, white blood cells, and so on. So, so what we are is effectively a, a very, very complex set of rhythms going on in the body. And these rhythms are not just stable. They're not just um, you know night and day, night and day. They're they're actually varying all the time. And, well, and so, what, what are some of the parameters that change a lot or dramatically in, in these various rhythms? And is anyone studying more than one of these or any of these in the medical context? They're often split into sort of individual rhythms. Uh, so, first of all, there's not a lot of study going on with rhythms, although chronotherapy and chronobiology is becoming a big area. So. Um, it, it was it was incredibly unpopular. People people had. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. In general, scientists and, and clinicians had, and still really have have not much real respect for the fact that rhythms are going on, uh, and and this is partly because we don't understand it. So you know what you don't understand is pretty hard to use, but. Uh, so it's better to to just sort of work with the stuff you know, and and in this respect, the uh, most of the the clinical cancer treatment is is it just goes on regardless and and doesn't take into account any of the rhythms, but the people that are studying it um, much more than I am have a have a much deeper respect for the fact that these rhythms might be altering the efficacy or the effectiveness of treatment. And uh, we started looking at this with CRP. So C-reactive protein um, goes up and down. 
And we notice that, that one of the most important things is how often you measure it. So if you measure it um, once a week, it's you, you sort of see a particular type of rhythm. If you measure it every couple of days, another rhythm. If you measure it once a month, another rhythm. Uh, if you measure it every day uh, or several times a day, then those rhythms actually become obvious. Now, we know about all of this, you know, say from diabetes, where we've been measuring glucose in the serum. And when we started measuring glucose, we'd do spot glucoses. And we would notice that in diabetics, they were elevated uh, and, and less of a treated. And uh, we would notice that, that it was pretty hard to get a handle on things. But when we had devices and systems and and the understanding that grew around it we could we could eventually take blood readings in a much more regular level and then we could notice these fluctuations that became obvious they became visible in in blood glucose so um so in and and now we've got this amazing situation where we can have fingerprint testing of glucose i mean it, it really is astounding compared to what we had only just you know, a few decades ago. And um, so patients themselves can do all of this from home and can really monitor their own blood glucose and, and, and have a deep understanding of exactly how their body works, what their glucose is doing, and relate that to symptoms so that they can feel a hypo coming on. They can feel where they're going a bit high. We now have monitors that you can even insert under the skin uh, or needles that go into the skin that can pick up blood glucose. And, and this has completely revolutionized the, the treatment. It's, it's more in the hands of the patient than it is in the hands of the clinician in some ways. And the clinician does the advising and, and the prescribing. I kind of see cancer as, as going a bit like this. Um, for example, CRP, uh, CRP measurements, if you do them daily, show a fluctuation. And we, we applied some, some pretty rudimentary mathematics, polynomial um, um, analysis to it. And, and it, it, it really sort of started to show a seven-day type cycle uh, going on. And we thought, wow, this looks well, so there was a there was a master cycle of glucose, you mean, that was over seven days? Well, this is on, with CRP now, but... but oh, CRP, with, okay. With, with glucose, it, it's, um, it's more a daily cycle, but... There are sort of rhythms over rhythms, if you know what I mean. For example, if you look at temperature, there's a there's a standard temperature rhythm which is diurnal, daily. But if you look more widely at temperature as it changes over a longer period of time, then it's actually related to the menstrual cycle as well in women, and it's it's um, quite separate in men. So so you can have sort of like a longer wave fluctuation. And you can have a shorter type fluctuation. And both of them actually related. Uh, and then these are related to cycles of, say, cortisol or um, menstrual, the menstrual cycle in women, which, which alters. I mean, that's how ovulation used to be picked as a peak, a sudden, sudden upshift in temperature. And there were a whole range of methods that, that, that were early contraception, basically. Um, so, so by studying other systems in the body, we can get a handle on on what we're talking about here, cancer. And we can study CRP, which is a very rough indicator of inflammation, as a marker for cancer. Turns out that CRP, and there's a lot written on this, CRP 
is actually a marker. A, a static single CRP is a marker for the development of cancer later. How amazing is that? It mostly single static readings, not much. What do you mean? What do you mean a static? What, but, what do you mean, Brendan? What do you mean a static reading? What do you mean? You mean if your CRP well, uh, doesn't change I, over time, or what, what do you mean? Uh, no, no. If if um, uh, I mean if you just have high if, CRP, someone, it's a predictor of cancer, or what? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it means. And and so for a range of cancers, and and for example, one of the most uh, researched ones in this regard is colorectal cancer. So if someone has a static measurement of CRP, uh, so they walk into their doctor, their doctor says, look, you know, I'm going to do a CRP uh, at, at kind of any time, then uh, that patient has a CRP. If that's elevated, then it is associated statistically with the development of colorectal cancer at some point in the future. Quite amazing uh, finding. Well, and is this, this is just from one reading over over or is this from, from readings over a period of time where it's chronically elevated? I've just gone to a slightly stronger, I've got, I've got the choice of a couple of bands and, and I've gone to a slightly stronger. All right. So um, let's, yeah, for the editor, you know, just edit this out and we'll pick up. So you were saying one measurement of elevated CRP or is it chronically high CRP uh, leads you to cancer colorectal? It, it one, one elevated measurement. So it can come back down after that, but a, but a single static measurement. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing actually. Um, what about chronically elevated CRP? What you know is it a lot higher risk even or what? Well, we don't know about that. We don't uh, at least at least I'm not aware that that chronically elevated CRP is associated with a higher risk of development of cancer. Uh, one thing you can say though is if you're monitoring CRP in a patient who's had a cancer removed. So if a patient's got a cancer, the CRP is generally uh, higher than uh, without. A cancer, so the, the CRP is almost not measurable in norm, so-called normal individuals who don't have a cancer um, in their system. When a cancer comes into the body's system, is associated with an elevation of the CRP. We're talking about two different things here. Um, the CRP in a healthy, in an otherwise healthy person, which is elevated at any point in time is associated with the development of subsequent development of cancer later down the track in that individual. It doesn't mean they're going to get it, but it means that they're, that it's associated with a higher chance of getting it. Well, so if we go back to circadian rhythms and measurement, you know, when you get blood work done, from what I've heard, you know, you want to go to the same lab, have it at the same time. Have you, if you're doing it fasting before, do it fasting now. But have, has anyone looked at doing blood markers at night or at different times? And again, I know it's at the convenience of the lab, but how much would C-reactive protein move during the day or night on someone? And could you get a false high reading if you do it at the wrong time, let's say? It, look, it's possible. But, but in normal individuals, CRP is almost not detectable. So it's so low that you couldn't pick much of a, a change in the, in the rhythm. So, so you, you actually need inflammation to be going on. And if inflammation is going on, say someone's got appendicitis or someone's got uh, pancreatitis or someone's just got an infection, say a um, splinter uh, is stuck uh, in, in a part of the body and, and they're getting a, an infection developing, CRP mm. will, will elevate. And almost always CRP is a, is a decent marker 
of inflammation of some type going on in the body. So it could be infective inflammation, it could be trauma. So if someone comes in after a road accident and they're beaten up, bruised, and, and their tissues are injured, uh, their CRP will be elevated almost always. And, and uh, if someone comes in with early appendicitis, you can watch their CRP climb up until they need it removed need the appendix removed so so it's a it's been it's a marker that's been used over a large number of years in multiple different ways as a ubiquitous measure of uh, inflammation and and in the cancer area crp is used as a marker of people getting cancer down the track it's used as a marker where if if the the uh, crp is elevated the patient's got a cancer, uh, the cancer's taken out surgically, say, and and then the CRP returns back to normal to sort of almost not measurable levels. And and then if you monitor that patient over time, say do do measurements of CRP, say every month or few months, you can actually pick when the cancer comes back by an elevation in the CRP. So it's it's not a bad marker for inflammation. It's fairly broad. So Inflammation of any type will cause an elevation. It's not specific for cancer, but it's it's can be used to detect cancer recurring. And moreover than that, you can actually associate it with survival. So CRP is associated, the actual levels of CRP that are measured in the serum are associated with survival. This may be a, a way of, say, detecting the presence of ongoing cancer. So if cancer's uh, still in the body and it hasn't been completely removed, then the CRP level might be mildly elevated or, or elevated to a, to a higher level, say, than, than in the normal situation for that individual. So, so it's, a, it's a remarkable marker and it's showing that, there's, that inflammation is, is highly associated with cancer. Okay, I mean, so what, what's next for the experimentation around CRP, or that's not your, uh, you're just commenting so, on it, but that's not your research. So we started, we started, well, it was part of the research, we started looking CRP in, in advanced melanoma patients, and, and uh, we also, there's another group looking in, in Melbourne, we're looking at um, CRP in, in advanced um, ovarian cancer, and, and other groups have looked at other advanced cancers too, and shown that, that CRP is elevated in patients with advanced cancer that can't be removed surgically, um, that CRP fluctuates also over time. And a group at Mayo Clinic looked at that as well with us with advanced melanoma. And, uh, and so we, we um, noticed that, uh, that this fluctuation appeared to have roughly a seven-day periodicity. But this was based on the mathematics. So there were two factors here at work that, that really determined the accuracy of what we were talking about and, and what the conclusions we could draw. And they were the frequency of the sampling of CRP. It had to be at least daily in order to, to start to show this, and, uh, or at least every few days, uh, to be able to show this. And the mathematics and and both of these turned out to be inadequate. We showed we sort of disproved our own findings, if you like. We started off um, by concluding that there was a seven day cycle on the basis of preliminary information, and and then we looked at it in more detail. And one of our one of our PhD students, Mosen, and and at this stage we started working with the electrical engineers at Adelaide University, and and 
uh, we started um, taking the data that we'd gained clinically and we gave it to the electrical engineers blindly and they sort of started manipulating it and, and looking at it mathematically multiple different ways. They had um, innumerable numbers of, of, of methodology, types of methods for mathematical analysis of, of the data. They looked at it from lots of different angles and found that the conclusions that we'd drawn from our, our fairly basic primitive mathematics were, were in fact probably an overstatement. And, and we, we, they might be true, but we just couldn't sort of say with, um, with great accuracy that they were true. And so we ended up kind of disproving our own, our own uh, findings, and, uh, which is, you know, often happens in science. And, and you know, it's, it's actually a good thing that if you can, if you can show something and then test it and then show that it doesn't work, then you've kind of refuted your own findings or filtered your own findings to, to sort of understand more about. So this, this constant backwards and forwards about truth and, and untruth and truth and untruth is, is a, an important aspect of the robustness of science. And, and you should never be frightened to disprove your own results. It doesn't look good. And people sort of look at it and say, well, you know, how can we, how can we sort of uh, trust your results? But the point is, we should always be searching for the truth. And the truth is not a single quantifiable static thing. It's a dynamic thing. The truth changes with new evidence. And, and once you start to test it properly, robustly, then you see whether the original theories and the original findings actually stand the test of scrutiny. And, and, and so we, we ended up disproving it. But what we did do was find a whole lot of new things. And, and uh, so what we found was that, that if you applied um, different mathematics and you looked at it in a different way, so we started using deep learning and artificial intelligence and we started showing that you could actually forecast what the next CRP level was going to be. Because after all, when we, when we originally published material, we showed that patients that had vaccination that occurred at a lower level in the, so as, as the CRP levels were coming down, they, they actually seemed to do better than people that got vaccinations at other parts of the cycle, if you like. Um, so the peaks. Brendan, what is the cycle? Have you looked and how much does it change on average in people over a seven-day period? Well, a hell of a lot, as it turns out. We thought it was a regular sort of seven-day cycle. And we thought that it was something that, that you could predict quite accurately. But what we found was the more CRP levels you take, uh, that's true. The, the cycle actually becomes a little more definable. You can see it better. But there's a lot of noise, too. And, and it's the noise that seems to be interfering with our ability to be able to pick a rhythm that we can then use for treatment. So um, imagine the heart, for example. That's a great example. The heart beats. It, it, it sort of has an ebb and a flow, and it's on a regular basis. You know, it sits around 80 beats a minute, say, and uh, it goes up a bit with exercise. It goes down a bit with sleep. And but it's roughly 80. So you can, you can roughly predict how the, the phases of the cardiac cycle working. And if you wanted to institute a treatment that, say, 
was was at a particular phase in the cardiac cycle, then you could you could do so. And and there are some treatments that, that do that, electrical treatments and so on. But uh, but you actually need to be able to pin down the rhythm properly to be able to know when to intervene. And this is what we were hoping to do with cancer that 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 if we could show that there was a if we could take the rhythm that we'd seen and we could show that this rhythm was regular, then we could intervene, just like you were saying earlier, we could intervene when it suits the patient according to the patient's own rhythm as opposed to intervening at another time, which maybe doesn't suit the patient. So there's even some some very basic evidence, and, and it's not good, but but it's it's... Um, it's something that's worth looking at further that if you intervene at the wrong time, you might actually make the treatment have an effect on the cancer that was worse for the patient, not better. So there's, there's times you might be able to intervene at, at a better time. that would Brent, Brendan, how much, like what is the numbers that express CRP? I've seen it from like one to eight. I don't remember what the scale is, but again, how does it vary over seven days typically? And why is there a variation? What do you think physiologically is causing this ebb and flow? Is it, you know, um, inflammation ramps up to clear the body of debris and then it does so and then goes down? Like, why do you think this yeah. is all happening? Well, I think that the immune system is fluctuating in the background and this is, this is still conjecture, but, but it's the best explanation that I can find that the immune system is reacting to the tumour in a in, not in a static way in other words it's it's not a constant constant level of inflammation or reactivity against the tumor that's going on that the reactivity is higher at some times and lower at other times and that this is related to other factors that are going on in the body so in other words the the immune system is is not constantly attacking the tumor it's ebbing and flowing so there's a, an attack going on and then it eases off and an attack going on and it eases off. And that this is reflected in the degree of inflammation and the degree of fallout that's going on, inflammatory uh, debris that's being released. And that that is reflected in the, in the CRP levels that we're seeing fluctuating. That's, that's probably the best explanation. And, and uh, well, well, Okay, Brendan, one, one second. Did you see this same cycle normally in people or did you only look in people that had cancer does it normally occur anyway the seven day cycle in in normals um as i was alluding to before in in normals the there's almost no measurable crp at all you know so i've I've seen it on many blood tests not just mine but i mean it's usually something's measurable it may be on the the scale i see is like 1.0 it's considered to be very healthy but i've certainly seen it uh, ever present yeah. on, on, on a lot of people so i think there's some and cycling of course, of it too. yeah but of course it's it's usually measured when someone's unwell you know it's used as a measure to see whether they're unwell and and so what prompts the measurement to be done is the fact that the person comes in not feeling well so so it's biased it's biased straight right from the beginning we're not we're not doing this in in a range of normal people with absolutely nothing going on and no concerns whatsoever we're doing it more in a range of people who come with a suspected problem because they're not feeling well so that's the first thing and the second thing is that that there is there is data 
that actually demonstrate that if you do do it in normal individuals, you know, you take a whole bunch of people that say they've got no problem going on and you measure CRP, it's at such an incredibly low level. It's, it's like a, at, at, the, at the lower end of the normal range, most of it, most of it sort of sits down there. And, and yes, there's a tiny fluctuation, but it's almost immeasurable. It's, it's so tiny. Whereas if someone's got, say, a cancer um, or a lot of inflammation going on, their CRP is sky high. It can be up to 200, say. And, and again, the units vary with the different labs, but, but it can go right up and then it comes down and then it goes up again and then it comes down and it goes up again. It's, it's hunting. It's a homeostatic response. I think that's going on uh, in the immune system to an inflammatory stimulus. And in this case, the inflammatory stimulus is the cancer. All right. So what, what would be the implication? Like how much does it change over the seven day cycle in cancer patients? And, you know, so what if you administer uh, therapy when it's high or low, what's the difference? Well, we're not, we're not sure. Um, there's not been enough work done to be able to draw any conclusions on it, but we, we, we know a few things like, for example, if you look at just general vaccination and there's been a lot of work done in vaccination of children and, and adults too, but children particularly, and particularly children under five in Africa. And, and so a lot of the, um, uh, quite a number of French studies and uh, what, um, what, what's been noted is that if you vaccinate children with tuberculosis vaccine, with, um, with polio vaccine, with um, measles vaccine, you can, you can actually uh, get a better response if it's injected in the morning than in the afternoon. And this is coming back to what you were saying earlier. And, and so there seems to be a difference in the time of the day that alters the effectiveness of the vaccine and moreover it depends on how many vaccines they get so if they get uh, and it may depend on the sequence of the vaccine too so if they get one vaccine and then they get another vaccine and then they get another vaccine their overall mortality is lowered and we we have absolutely no real and it's not just from those infections either it's from everything Uh, so we have no real idea why that's happening but it's, it's conferring protective immunity against a whole range of things that go way beyond um, those types of infections. So, what's, so uh, what, what's next for your experimentation to figure out, you know, C-reactive protein is, uh, you know, how it should guide cancer treatment? What, what's next for you? So um, we, we've sort of, we've got a bit of a pause at the moment. We're, we've had a look at, um, as, I, as I said earlier, artificial intelligence and, and we've deep learning and we've had a look at how we can forecast the CRP level. So if we know that it's going down, for example, and we can forecast that it's going down, a little bit like forecasting the weather, um, you know that, that tomorrow's weather is likely to be pretty much similar to today's. And you can forecast rain, uh, you can forecast good conditions, and uh, superimposed on that is a seasonal fluctuation too that we all know about. But you can pretty accurately forecast what's going to happen in a short period after, provided you've got enough data on what's happened in the last couple of weeks. So similarly, you can do that with CRP. If you have a series of measurements of CRP and you know roughly what they are, you can teach the uh, algorithm, mathematical algorithm, 
in artificial intelligence to, uh, to actually work this through and then predict what the next CRP level would be. Now, this, this gets around a lot of the problems of the noise, which we've, we've had in trying to determine the rhythms. We looked at, at a whole lot of different mathematical methods to try and nail this down. And we ended up going right back to the 1800s, um, where a, a chap from Cambridge and another uh, Russian mathematician were working separately, and they were looking at sunspots. Now, sunspots are really interesting because sunspots actually have a rhythm about them. And, and people thought they were random. So there's a lot of noise going on there. If you sit and try and measure sunspots, there's a lot of a lot of noise. But you can actually use types of mathematics to, to nail this down and have a look at the rhythmicity of sunspot development. And, and we were using some of those same sort of mathematics to, to look at it, to look at our CRP data and to look at the fluctuations in CRP data. But we found that, that they were still probably not good enough for being able to use them clinically to determine whether we would jump in and treat at a particular time or not, or, or choose not to jump in and, and uh, worry about it, it making the patient perhaps worse. So we've used, we've, we've adopted a whole lot of approaches and we're still trying to sort this out. But the, the, the net result is that, that using artificial intelligence and forecasting of CRP measurements, we can probably predict when we can jump in and treat a patient. Whether that's more effective or not is going to be determined by some future clinical studies. So, so we'd, we'd, we'll probably move down that pathway in the, in the near future. Very good. Well, Brendan, we're now out of time. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Um, so they can contact me through Adelaide University. They can uh, go on the on the net and have a look, Google Scholar or um, PubMed, and have a look at some of their publications. And uh, and they're probably good starting points. But I'm happy to talk to to people if they've got questions. Okay, well, very good, Brendan. Thank you again for coming back, and and I really appreciate it. No problems, Richard. All the best. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.